Welcome to Two Lit Mamas, a kid-lit podcast for parents, teachers, and writers. I'm Heather Kaufman-Peters. I'm the mother of one teenage boy. I'm a preschool teacher and a writer. And I'm Margie Ozimet, mom to two boys, former middle school teacher, homeschooler, and writer. Welcome to Tulip Mamas. By the way, I tried to follow your wisdom of not watching the news, but yeah, that went all kind yeah, of Yeah, that wrong. didn't last for me either. It's done. I mean, it was so bad that I thought like my phone was going to be like, um, you're addicted and um, you're going to have to take it away. You know what? It gives you like your screen time countdown because I'm not on like social media. I just, you know, I, I'm on Apple News, Apple News constantly. But you know, I woke up this morning and we're recording this the day after the inauguration I woke up this morning for the first time in four years and I wasn't like, give me the damage report. I was like, Whew. like the last couple of weeks have been like, so, so is anybody set the Capitol on fire? Did anybody blow up? I mean, literally it's been just unreal. I just made myself a cup of chamomile and I'm like, oh my God, for the first time in four years, it's not medicinal and it doesn't have whiskey in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of sad. No, it's a little early for that, but um, I'll have it later with my hot toddy because it's really cold out here in Massachusetts right now. Oh, speaking of cold, we're talking about some cold stuff this time. I know. We're <laughs> going to get ready to chill. We're in like, like chill, like freeze chill, not just like chill. So we got two books this week that both deal with extreme winter weather, which are perfect for some bone chilling January reading, which is what I've been doing a lot of. Again, I think it's so cool to read things in the moment. And so like we're reading winter stories in January and I just think it makes it, it brings it out into the, your, your world, especially for kids. It like makes it a whole big thing. I oh yeah, that. totally. Totally. Like the one book sets the mood and this, they're like trapped. Basically they're trapped in this kind of like an ice castle for lack of a better word. And you just feel it like you're sitting by the fire and you're reading this book and you're like, oh yeah, this is it. It so puts you in the mood. I can't imagine trying to read it in the summer. You know, we normally stick with recent releases, but we're going to do a little throwback for this one. Back to a time when Margie and I were young and fresh and naive and idealistic. Back when we were young. I know, right? We weren't young. We were like the mothers of everyone in that class, for God's sakes. They were 12. They were 12 in our grad class when we met. And we were not, obviously. We were not even close. And when they started mocking Def Leppard, it was game on. We were like, oh, oh, <laughs> hell no. I'm wearing my Def Leppard shirt. Oh, you're wearing your Def Leppard shirt. Margie sent me a Def Leppard shirt for my 50th birthday. I'm wearing it's it. It's our band. It's our song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That seems like 100 years ago. And I didn't even have Nugget then. Remember, I was pregnant with Nugget. Nugget was in the belly. Now Nugget's a man. Not really. He's seven, but he thinks he's 47. He acts like an old man. He does act like an old man. He's just grumbling. And I was like, you know what you are this morning? He was like, and he's like, you're like the inner monologue of Joe Biden. Can you stop? You're like this like old man who's like trying to be happy on the outside. But every so often somebody sees the true you. I don't want to do school. I don't want to go to OT today. I don't feel like reading. I'm like, she's simmer down, little friend. Life is just getting started for you, dude. You have no idea. I know life is so hard when you're seven, right? And he's getting like, he lost his two front teeth and those giant rabbit teeth are starting to come in. And I, every time I look at him, it just cracks me up. I'm like, you're so weird looking right now. <laughs> Mom, that's not nice. <laughs> maybe, maybe when those two giant rabbit teeth come in, all this money that I spent on speech therapy, you'll prove to have been worth it. Anyway, uh, so how's things out there before we get started? Um... 
Well, uh, we bought land because we're insane. Because you're nuts. Because basically you're trying to run away from civilization. We are. My husband keeps saying we're, we bought it for private privacy. He says privacy because he knows I'm a bit of a <laughs> yes. anglophile. Yes. Had to say it once in 2021. Okay. Anyway. So yeah. Uh, yeah. We just bought a whole bunch of land not too far from where we live right now because I don't know. The pandemic brought it on that we have like a vision of living in the middle of nowhere in our little house in the big woods. I believe that's called isolating. <laughs> I know. And I think that that's something that you're supposed to be concerned about when people begin to do that. So I'll just keep in touch about that. I did say to him, you're not taking me out in the woods so you can kill me, are you? Right? And hide your body. <laughs> P.S. He's got a bad back. It won't happen. He can't He can't dig the hole. <laughs> oh, no. He's going to listen to it. I'll be, sorry. Love you. <laughs> I have faith that maybe you could get help to dig the hole. You could hire somebody. You're good at that. <laughs> Do you know when I, this is total segue, but when I was a kid on a farm in Iowa, P.S., there was this woman who, um, in a very close by town, and her husband was abusive, and he used to beat her really badly, and then he disappeared, and their pigs got really fat. <gasps> For real? And they knew it, and they found it. Yes, they knew that she had killed him and fed him to the pigs, but that was like, you know, that was the 80s. DNA wasn't a thing. And they could never prove it. And God bless that woman. She got away with it because he couldn't prove it. And he deserved it. See, if Jim gets pigs, then you need to run. You come on out here, girl. Come on out. Sis, you get on the plane and get your ass out here. Well, it was so funny because when since we're doing a throwback episode, I was thinking, or throwback book episode, I was thinking about how in grad school, you wrote these stories about women killing their husbands. Oh, it's so sad. I have written so many about him. I know. It's so funny because I was going to talk about that when it talks about like, later on, we were talking about our, um, like, I, we were talking about an article about re- reading trends and all these people, like what people were reading. And I'm like, well, where's <laughs> All the like femicide books. <laughs> where they like where are the annihilation books? Why are people reading those? Because I need that in my life right now. <laughs> I read some serious Margaret Atwood in that moment. <laughs> oh my god. Yes. Just anyway, watch out, honey. If he gets the pigs, then it's gonna be time to move. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. Nothing new exciting out here. Same old, same old. We're just so happy to be like coming around a phase of normalcy. You know, I'm so excited. It's attainable. You can almost touch it now. Because there's nothing else happening. Literally, the winter in New England is horrible. Winter in New England during a pandemic when you cannot leave is even more levels of horrible. So like we've been trying to meet up with friends on the playground, but it's so ungodly cold. And then you have like the wind whipping in off the ocean that you're standing there. And I am like the queen of the face mask right now. And some days I just wear two because they're warm. I love it. (laughs) Like, and we have to wear them everywhere. I don't know if like other states have that. We have to wear them on playgrounds. Anytime you're outside, you have to wear them. So with that cold theme, shall we get started? Sure. Today, we're going to talk about two books that take full advantage of this like nasty season. The first one is called Icefall by Matthew Kirby. And the second one is by our own Heather Kaufman Peters, Blizzard on the Plains. And I'm really excited to talk about both of these because, well, obviously Blizzard on the Plains because I was there from its birth. I was say you were there from the birth of my baby and um, I was there for the birth of your book. And then it happened at the same time. But I also, like Icefall is a book I never in a hundred million years would have chosen on my own because nothing in it would have been like something that would have jumped off the shelf to me. And I loved that book. Yep. I'm excited to read them too. So let's get started.
All right. So let's start with Icefall because, as I said, it was an awesome read. And it was unexpectedly good to me just because I'm not like a Nordic nerd like you. Why were you so surprised? Because it was my pick and you thought, no way would you like it? (laughs) Well, we have such different tastes, but you're like such a Nordic nerd. I've never really gotten into that. Now I have a like a, I I fell down a very bizarre rabbit hole after reading this book about berserkers and Vikings. And I now can't wait for my kids to go to bed so I can watch that show, the Vikings, because um, my husband and I are like, what? There's some serious, um, I don't know, what do you call it? Like warriors? Like there's some warrior vibe in there that I really like that. And I didn't know. So anyway, what do you know about this book? Tell us about it. All right. Um, Icefall came out in 2011. So that was back around the time we met. And this book was on my radar right away because it was a Viking story, which I have a small obsession with, like Margie mentioned. Nordic nerd. (laughs) It received a lot of attention. It won the 2012 uh, Edgar Award for Best Juvenile Mystery. It received a 2011 Agatha Award nomination. It was added to the New York Public Library list of 100 books for reading and sharing. And it received a 2012 ALA. Best Fiction for Young Adults. Um, So yeah, so it was pretty much on everyone's radar. (laughs) It was a big hit. Yeah. And honestly, you still see it. So the book follows the story of Solveig, the middle sibling in a Viking royal family. And Solveig, along with her beautiful older sister, Asa, and her younger brother, the future king, Harold, were whisked away in the night to a hidden fortress near a remote fjord. So the three siblings, along with her cook and her son, three guards and a servant, were sent into hiding for protection after their father, the king, declared war on a chieftain. Well, actually, I think the chieftain sort of declared war on him because he wanted Asa's hand in marriage, but the king was having none of that because he was an old and gross dude yeah (laughs) it was kind of hard to tell like who who started the war we knew it was over her but it was like either the the dad was mad that it wasn't enough he wasn't going to give him enough but he also didn't want to give this yucky guy this beautiful daughter and then the chieftain was mad because he's like well I I get I made the offer. It's like, well, I offered you said six ninety nine. I gave you six ninety nine. Like, give me the one. So you can't back out, right? Right, So it's this very bizarre kind of a. You know, I think that's what Viking wars usually ended up as. They were like, well, most wars, stupid disputes. Yeah, two angry men. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the war kind of drags on longer than they expected because they went there in the summer and they were hoping that the king would come retrieve them before winter hit because in the fjords, as soon as winter hits, then the ice freezes o- or the water freezes over. And they didn't have a lot of supplies. They didn't have time. They went really fast. Yeah. And there's no getting out once the water is frozen. So, um, but then right before the water freezes over, those longboats sail up the fjord and they see that it's berserkers the king has sent his best warriors to um come and stay with them through the winter and he sent some supplies and stuff so now the berserkers are very frightening and unpredictable and they're not really a welcome sight by the people in the fortress so and then as the long hard winter kind of drags on and the food supplies start to run low things get really tense in the fortress right especially because they've got these huge hulking warriors who are huddled in this room with and them they, you know they smell bad and they eat oh, a lot. Oh, of course. And they, they probably must be fart, like B.O. all over. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, the farting. I bet they farted all the time. Go on. Worse though, they figure out there's a spy or a saboteur among them that makes life even more treacherous. And then beyond the physical threats, poor Solvig, our main character, has her own worries because 
Well, first of all, she's a middle child. So the poor girl well, has hello. that going Great on for sister. Her. I know that's <laughs> And her sister and brother have important roles to play in the kingdom, but Solvig doesn't really know where she belongs. She's pretty much neglected by her father because her sister's beautiful. Her brother's brave and is going to be king and there's really no place for her. But the king's scald, who all, who's the kind of historian storyteller who also came along with the berserkers, starts to realize that Solvig has a natural talent for telling stories. So he kind of starts to nurture this skill in her. And kind of as she's starting to hone these skills, the saboteur strikes again, resulting in dead berserkers. And the royal siblings are starting to freak out and realize that they're probably in pretty grave danger. And that's all I'm going to say about it, because from there on, the story gets awesome. (laughs) You know what's so funny, though? Like, the story... It, it's a slow moving story, is which is slow. really weird for a kid's book. It's a very, but I never got bored because the character building, I felt like the character building and the connections and the relationship building, like, for example, the head of the berserkers is this guy named Hake and Hake and slowly form this bond, like father, daughter, brother, sister, uncle, and niece. And I I loved just seeing that. I loved just like seeing that slowly grow. I loved kind of watching her. She kind of is total 100% middle child at the beginning. And then she kind of finds this hidden talent of telling these stories and kind of watching her grow. There's not a lot of action. I mean, little things happen that are, you know, well, hello, we have dead berserkers. But until like the last probably... I don't know, quarter of the book. book, Yeah, yeah. maybe like not that, not that much really happens. I mean, this stuff that you would expect to happen when you're frozen in with a bunch of farting berserkers in a fort, you know, on the fjord. But I loved it. I just devoured this book. I just felt like I was in it. I'm not a fantasy kind of person. I'm not like that. I don't really always do so well with the historical fiction, but I was like a hundred percent in it and I could not put it down. And there's just something about this book. The mystery is very subtle because I kept seeing, I kept reading it. And I'm like, how did this get best award for best juvenile mystery? I'm like, where's the, what, what's the mystery? And then I kind of slowly, it really slowly unveils like who is responsible for all these bad things that keep happening. And mm-hmm. like, is somebody, did somebody kill these berserkers? Did they not? Was it just a freak accident? And that's where the mystery came in. And I was like, oh, I like this. Okay. I really like this. Can I just explain the berserkers for a minute? Because I felt that was really interesting. You didn't know about berserkers? No, I'm not a Nordic nerd like you. (laughs) And so I didn't know all these. And I'm just a poor old Irish girl. And we don't have a lot of exciting things happening up there. So, you know, uh, and I'm an adopted Turk. So I know a lot about like the Ottoman nut jobs and Genghis Khan and all of those things. But this whole concept of the berserkers, like they go berserk. They go into this, they're like these massive beasts, like a linebacker. And they sort of go into, in the book, as we talked about it, I guess when I did my Google dig, I found out they actually took a drug. But in the book, they just sort of have this sort of, they're kind of like a higher being or a lower being, whatever you want to call it. Um, And they have this sort of magical, it's almost like Odin summons them into a fury. And once they're into their, they've gone berserk. And I didn't know that's where it came from. Yeah. And I didn't know that like, and they go into this like uncontrollable rage that they're not even there anymore. And they're just like, they're just, it's like Thor, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like a big moment of Thor taking over, you know, um, in one of the, (laughs) in in like Endgame or one of those movies. So it was really cool. Yeah. And they can become very dangerous when they're in their berserker state because they'll kill everything in their path. They can't be brought back. Yeah, Yeah. They can't discern. And then it takes them a while to come out of it. And they're massive. 
That's the other thing. Like, and that's what she, like when they show up, the kids are all just like, oh no, of all the things to send. Everybody's terrified. Right. Because they're these massive beasts. They wear either wolves or bear heads on like furs on their body. They have like leather. um, They sound just hot, don't they? The adult version of this story would be. Right? I was like, oh, hey now, why are you so scared of those boys? They sound good. (laughs) I was like, I'll take a berserker instead of my scrawny little Turk. (laughs) But they sound like these just sort of massive warrior forces. And the thing, like, they're usually just used as warriors, but her father was actually trained by a berserker. And that's how he became strong enough to be king, which I thought was a really interesting part of the backstory. Mm-hmm. So he kind of elevated his team of berserkers into this special guard. Berserkers were usually sort of shunned by normal society because of their <laughs> terrifying ways. And so in this kingdom, they're sort of held up as a special guard. But people are still terrified of them. I thought the the Skald had like a really cool line where he says, one of the problems with having an army is having to live with them during times of peace. And I thought that was really interesting because, yeah, what do they do with themselves? And that's sort of part of the tension that just keeps building inside this castle. Yeah, there's like a bunch of meatheads that need to kill something. Right. And they don't have anything to kill. And they can't even like go out hunting, you know, because it's, it's all frozen up. I will say, like, for me, the beginning of this book was a little bit slow, and it took a while to sort of get into the cadence of it. But once you get into it, then it's really great. But I was a little bit, I was worried because I think I texted you something about the female main character written by a man because I was a little bit nervous in the beginning because I get a little bit nervous about men writing female main characters because, of course, and the you know, it's this whole thing where her sister's the beautiful one and she's not beautiful. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, I'm so over. Over that whole trip. Yeah. But really that gets downplayed pretty early on in a way because it's really more focused on what are her skills and how can she share them in her with her family, you know. And her beauty is also all she's got. Like that sister is just a slime ball. Hey, no spoilers, no spoilers. No, no, no. She just drove me nuts because she was always like all mopey and blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, good Lord. Could you just get over it and help? And she would always like shun her sister because she was helping the servants. I'm like, there's like six people on this island. How about you get up and do some laundry too, girl? She was such a slime ball. I was just like, oh, you drive me nuts. I, I don't have sisters. This is the Lord Odin at work, apparently. <laughs> but so I always have like, I always get so frustrated with like this. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. Oh, shut up. You know, like, And that's how the sister would you just drive me nuts i also got it drove me nuts that i didn't know how old the little brother was because sometimes when i started reading i thought he was like 15 and then as it went on i'm like is he like seven it was really it was hard to kind of place it he would kind of talk like a very young child but then he could do things like an older child so yeah it was really hard to place although i will say having studied viking history one of my favorite stories i came across was the story of a mother who was proud of her son because he was a, he walked across the whatever the land to the next farmstead to borrow something or to take them something and then he came back and then you find out at the end that the child was two years old and I was like okay so maybe maybe the young child who is supposed to be the king could do some of the things that they said he could do but I don't know like I was kind of picturing him around seven or eight but yet he kind of talked like 
more babyish sometimes, but yeah, he would, he really idolized the berserkers and he wanted them to be his trainers. But at the same time, he was also, he needed, like, he would get really upset about things and kind of Slovik was very much like a mother to him, not the older sister. She was too worried about herself all the time, always worried about herself. I think the other thing about this story at the beginning too, that took me just a little bit of time was because it's written in present tense, which with adventure stories, I really usually enjoy because it gets you right in the action along with the story. And especially for middle grade, I think that's a fun thing to use as a way to get kids into the story. But it was kind of hard because it's historical. I mean, it's set in in Viking times. And so it kind of kept like messing with my head because I was like, okay, but this is in the past. And we're acknowledging that this is actual Viking. Viking times, there's nothing that says like, you know, this is another world and it's at this current time. So that kind of, I don't know, sometimes I would just mess with me a little bit and pull me out of the story. It's so interesting. I I didn't even notice it because I was just really like, I was so sucked in, I guess. I do like that present tense tool to use, you know, for action stories or adventure stories. But this is the first time where I've seen it. And I was like, oh, maybe because this didn't feel like fantasy really. Mm -hmm. It felt more like, I mean, I know it's not historical fiction, but it kind of felt a little bit like historical fiction. It felt like a great blend of the two, I thought. So I guess that was the only thing. But yeah, I just, the story is so great. And I have to say kudos to uh, Matthew Kirby because I've read the Edda, which is, was written by Snorri Sturluson during like the 1200s. And it's basically a collection of Viking myths. And Matthew Kirby got like the cadence and the way they describe things and all that stuff really into this book in a way that was like not too difficult for middle grade readers. Um, because like sometimes in the, in the Edda, they'll, they'll use like, there was a lot of those hyphenated descriptions, you know, in the in yeah. Icefall. And that's very common in the Eddas. Sometimes they would use it like a description, like in this Edda, the, the land lacking ruler of men. So that basically is like a sea king or, you know, so that is like a description, but it fits with what they're trying to describe. And then other times they'll use the hyphenated words to stand in for another word. So almost like slang. And so that's a little bit harder to follow, but he didn't really do any of that. He just used it more of a descriptive where he would have the hyphenated words in front of something. I don't know. I I just thought like the characters, Ulrich was the skald that came with the berserk. He was the storyteller. He's basically the historian. He tells the story of everybody and every night, like while we all sit around on our phones, they would like sit around and he would tell the story. And that's what his whole job was. And I felt like that was a great, a great introduction. And then for her to to decide that that's something that she might be able to do and him to really like Ulrich really pushed her to become that and to become that storyteller. And even for one minute, she's like, but I'm a woman. And he's like, it doesn't matter. And I thought like, there we go. That's awesome. And then that was sort of when we saw her become something besides the middle child that wasn't pretty and wasn't going to be king. Right. And I thought that was really awesome. I'd like to like the whole process of him teaching her how to do it. And then how she also kind of blended with how she normally told stories. So she was sort of true to herself, but also took on kind of what he was teaching her. Oh my gosh. When we were watching the um, inauguration and Amanda Gorman spoke, the poet laureate, mm-hmm. holy cow, it made me think of the scald when he was training her how to use her hands to emphasize things and her voice, like the highs and the lows. Man, that woman had it down. It was so impressive. Oh, we're going to see her for years. Oh, Mark my words. We're going to see her forever. She was amazing. Uh, Yeah, I thought the same thing. It was funny because when she came on, my husband is not 
artistic or literary minded in any way, shape or form. He is an engineer. But more than that, he English is not his first language and he right. does struggle with English a lot. So especially poetic English really throws him off. And when he was, we were sitting there watching this yesterday and watching her and he's like, this is really amazing. And I'm like, yes, this is exactly it. Because when Slovig would get up there and tell the stories, these berserkers would, these like animals basically would just stop and they would be mesmerized by the cadence of her voice and the movements in her hands. And I'm like, that's exactly it. Because my husband is not an animal, (laughs) but he was, he was like, this is really mesmerizing. I really like what the way she's doing this is really interesting. She was, she's just amazing and adorable. And I just loved her. Just like Solveig having to kind of read the room and just determine which story to tell. I felt like Amanda Gorman just like read the crowd so perfectly. Like that was the best thing she could have read. And it was just beautiful. And it's the one thing that I've seen so many people talk about after mention after the fact beyond anything else, people talk about her poem. And I guess um, she has a children's book. I think it's supposed to have that poem that she read in it or something similar. And I I pre-ordered it already because I wanted it. I wanted that. It sounded cool. Is it coming? Yeah, it's not out yet because I went on Amazon right away because I Googled her name and then that came up and it wasn't out yet, but I pre-ordered it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I have to say, I thought that this book was amazing. I literally was surprised and so pleasantly surprised. You know, like you read a book and you're like, oh, it's a good book. Mm-hmm. But then there's those books where you're so sucked in that you just want to like, the first thing you want to do when you get a spare moment is pick that book up. And I never would have guessed that I would have felt that way about this book when I read the background or whatever. I thought, oh, that'd be a good book. Mm-hmm. But I was really, really, I really enjoyed it. I was really sucked in. So Ice Fall by Matthew Kirby. Yeah, it was a great read. Definitely. All right. So two thumbs up for us from us. Two, on that definitely one. two thumbs up for that. Okay. So we had a young hero on the fjord and now we have a young hero plucked from the fjord Aww. and stuck on the prairie in your book, Blizzard on the Plains. And this is available on Amazon, right? Yep. So um, this book, I just want to add a little bit. So this, when we were in our graduate class together, where we met, this was when I knew that I was in love with my little counterpart next to me because she was like, Oh, um, I really like to write middle grade books. And I'm like, I really like to write middle grade books too. Oh my God. (laughs) And then she was like, Oh my God, I love your story about killing the husbands. And I'm like, I like stories about killing husbands too. (laughs) So anyway, the, the course of that class, while I continued to kill husbands on various continents and do some horrific, I remember that I wrote the story about the fat, the guy who went to go find his lady and she was the fat lady and the bearded lady from the circus, his adopted mother. I don't know. I was pregnant. Let me just stop there. <laughs> I wrote some really insane stories. I never took fiction. That was my first fiction class. So I'm like, I had all these weirdo stories in my head I wanted to share. And you did. I wrote about like sex workers in Turkey and all kinds of bizarre things. Heather, however, had a plan and she was going to finish this book. So every, every class, every week, another chunk of this book would come in and then we would create, you know, like critique it and go on for the next part. So I really did see this book from the very beginning Mm -hmm. and then to be able to read it, you know, as a done final product out there with a cover and everything, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a, it's a cool thing. It's a cool thing to be part of. So your book takes this really bizarre natural disaster. I guess it's a natural disaster because the people are dead, right? It's like a natural weather phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And it's the 1888 blizzard on the Dakota territory. 
Mm-hmm. And that was what's called the school children's blizzard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that basically it came out of nowhere on this beautiful, unseasonably warm January day and it killed hundreds and it trapped people. And it was literally, no one was prepared for it because no one had a coat and everybody was like, oh, it's 70 degrees. Let's go frolic in the, in, in the prairie. And then all of a sudden this blizzard blew in and everything turned upside down in a matter of minutes, really. So um, you explore this real life this real life incident, because it really happened um, from the perspective of Carl. And Carl is a very reluctant immigrant from Norway. Um, and he and his family are pretty new to life on the prairie. And when the blizzard hits and destroys the school that they are in, Carl, it's up to Carl to save his teacher, who he has a little crush on, his baby sister, and um, his classmates. But Carl's not sure he's up for it. <laughs> Carl thought really at the very beginning of this, Carl's like, I'm going to save the day. And then about five minutes into the blizzard, Carl's like, I might not be able to save the day. <laughs> anyway, we can discuss a lot of points about this. But tell me, where did you come up with this? Like, how did you find this topic? Well, because I'm a dork, I saw a documentary on PBS. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, and it was about Minnie Freeman, and she was a teacher who saved her the children in her schoolhouse during the blizzard. And I thought the story was fascinating. I'd never heard of the school children's blizzards. Yeah, I never heard of it until you told me that time. And I'm like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. And it's a really cool idea. So after I watched the documentary, then I kind of went down the rabbit hole, as you do. And then I read The Children's Blizzard by David Laskin, which is a really cool book. It's kind of part the history of meteorology and part a collection of personal stories that happened during that time. Like um, he went back and researched and talked to families who are living now and the stories of their loved ones from the time. And then I found this amazing diary called Pioneer in Dakota. It's like a very old book. Where did you find that? I just found it on Amazon when I was researching. That book looks like, I mean, she's holding the book up and I'm just going to tell you, it looks like something that my grandmother like salvaged from the one room schoolhouse that was out behind her farm. It looks super old. Seriously. And it was just like published by a college or something in, in the Dakotas. And, um, but anyway, it's called Pioneering in Dakota. And it's the firsthand account by, uh, written by O.W. Corsi. And it's basically his life as a child, like homesteading on the plains and how he also survived the blizzard. And so that gave me a lot of insight. And then there were some other books too about like firsthand accounts that were stories that were collected afterward. Um, cause they sort of created like these, blizzard survival clubs after this happened because over 200 children were killed because the storm hit um, either right after children had left for school or right after school let out, like as it swept across the plains. Uh-huh. So it caught kids walking either to school or home from school. Some kids got trapped in their schools overnight. Some teachers thought, oh, let's send all the kids home when they saw the blizzard coming, which so kids got stuck because it was a total whiteout. So they couldn't see anything. And wind, the wind, like it was like 60 mile an hour winds or something too, right? Like insane. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was really fascinating to imagine what that would have been like. And then also just researching all the things that kids did to survive, the ones that did survive. Mm-hmm. And I kind of collected all of their tricks and techniques that they used to survive and put them in this book and had Carl and his school um, classmates use a lot of them to survive. So they're all like real things that kids did to survive through the blizzard. And then at the end, you also have a section about some of the things you can do to fight hypothermia, how to know when frostbite, which I think is interesting too, because from a teaching standpoint, that's really great. Kind of a follow-up to what we've just read. And it is historical fiction. 
why? Why are you so, you are so into historical fiction. Why? What is that that draws you? This is like asking me why I'm into like fart jokes and, and things like that. I, I, you know, you are what you are, but um, like what kind of drove you to want to write your first book to be a piece of historical fiction for middle grade readers? I was really close with my grandpa when I was a kid. And I think that's how it is for a lot of historians. They had like a relative who told a lot of stories from either their life or the life of, you know, ancestors that came before them. And that's just how I grew up. My grandpa would tell me stories about when he was a kid and what it was like. And then he would tell me stories about his parents and our immigration story. I knew our immigration story from very young age, how we, you know, that side of the family immigrated from Sweden. Um, And in fact, book is uh, about a Norwegian family, but my family is Swedish. And um, the night before my great, 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 great relative was supposed to come over from Sweden on the boat. They had their ticket. It was the father and the eldest son were going to come and they both chickened out the night before. Get out. And the youngest son said, well, I'll go. And he got on a boat the next day, never having planned to come. And that's how my ancestor got to America. And he settled in Illinois where there were other Swedish people at the time. And my family actually lives about a mile from where the original homestead was for the Swedish relatives that came over uh, for the man. And he married a Swedish woman here that was already, her family was already living here. Yeah, it's a crazy story. And so in the book, I included uh, that scene where before the this family, Carl's family comes to America, the, the brother who's supposed to come with them, his uncle Oleg chickens out. Yeah. You know, it's terrible to call it chickening out because think about it. You're never going back. They knew that that was a one-way thing for them. Honey, even in 20 something, when you come over, you know, you're not going back because it's expensive and it takes a really long time. We haven't been back to Turkey for a long time. Yeah, it's expensive and you can't take the whole family back to visit, you know, and it's hard. It's also it's really hard. Yeah. And plus, I think once you get here, you you're looking forward. You're not looking back. And so you get to the business of living your life. And so anyway, um, just family immigration story, family heritage. And then just I just love have always loved history and, and imagining what it would be like to me. Studying history is like time traveling. Yeah, because it puts you in that space. Um, Especially if you really immerse yourself in the research. You also love prairie stuff. You've, you've always been, you know, you, no, you really do. You like, you really love that sort of Americana, early Americana sort of prairie settlers sort of thing. I had a couple of friends that have been like that. I was not a Laura Ingalls Wilder kind of gal. I mean, I read it. I was like, oh, I like her, but I like, there are those people that are really drawn to that, really into that lifestyle and that, that his part of history. And I think that fits you too, which makes perfect sense because you're, depictions of life are very clear like that the Saudi that they lived in and the ma- the mice in the walls which just is disgusting to me and you know like <laughs> the snake that fell out of the ceiling on the Christmas pancake and everything else you know you clearly know what you know like you clearly are well versed in this you clearly have done your research and you know that time period and I think that that really comes through and I think it's really important for kids to be able to get that too I think part of that time period too for me that I just find fascinating is I mean people talk a lot about that American bootstrapping kind of thing and I'm a farm girl and so that kind of appeals to me but one of the things too when I was researching this book I realized how much that whole idea of bootstrapping just isn't really real because it was communities that built 
the West. It was communities on these prairies. People came together and they built the churches. They built the schools. They built the communities. They helped each other on their homesteads. It wasn't one person out there by themselves becoming a huge success story. It was this whole sense of community. And to me, that's what America stands for. And I just get a little patriotic when I think about those people <laughs> helping each other out and, and trying to make a better world together. And I just think that's amazing. Another cool thing about that time period is a lot of women too claimed property and homesteads, because if you were unmarried, you could be a head of household. And so a lot of women took advantage of buying land. And then later when they would eventually get married, then they would have double their homestead. And I think that was pretty inspiring too, to discover that you know, I mean, women just get left out of history so much anyway, but I mean, that's why I wrote the, the, the woman in who has the homestead in the school is on her yeah. property. And that's why I added her in there because there were a lot of women who had their own homesteads during that time period. And especially Scandinavian women, um, because they already had a lot more equality in Scandinavian countries, like going back to Viking times even. And that was another thing that was kind of in that Icefall book about like the cook always had the keys to the larder. And that was a big thing. Like women were in charge of the homesteads in Viking times. I think women were in charge of a lot of the homesteads in, in uh, prairie times too. Yeah. Even when I was growing up, it was still a very matriarchal. The farm life is, for whatever people want to believe, it's still a pretty matriarchal society. Well, and the Dakotas actually, in order to attract women back then, because you couldn't have... I mean, you know, I live uh, where I live. There's a sign about a quarter mile away from me that says this is the location of the first uh, woman who lived in this area. Because you know what? An area is not settled until you have women living there, because that's when you have towns. That's when you have families, you have children, you have you know community. And so if it's just a bunch of men who are trading and hunting and all that, you don't have a town. Well, you can't. <laughs> Simple biology. <laughs> And that was one of the things like out in the Dakota Territory and around that area at the time when they were trying to get it settled, they gave a lot of allowances to women and women got involved in politics and did a lot of stuff. You know, that's a pretty significant thing, too, that happened during that time period. In the book, you know, the head of or the head, what is she, not a headmistress, what is, she was just the teacher, I guess, of the one room schoolhouse. But she was a feisty little broad in her late teens, early 20s. And she, and it was she was very much a take charge kind of gal. Physically, she was not able to do things. So then she had to depend on Carl because she was a little nugget and he was a big burly boy, you know, and it, but it was very clear that she was in charge of the situation from the get go. Um, it was very clear that the mother made the decisions in the household. And Carl very much wants to go back. When I say he's a reluctant immigrant, he doesn't want to be there. He wanted to stay in Norway. He's got money from his uncle and he knows that his uncle, his, his uncle, the one that chickened out, has told him that at any time he can come back, join him on a, to become a fisherman. And that's all Carl wants to do. He doesn't want to stay here. He doesn't want to be in America. He doesn't want to be on the prairie. But he also knows that his mom told him he has to. And his dad said, well, your mom says you have to. So, you know, that's kind of how it is. And the voice of the mother is very heavy in this book. And the and it's really, that's who runs the family. And I think that that's very accurate. I think that's very accurate in a lot of families. It was in mine. My grandma Hello, she was in charge of everything. She called all the shots um, and she only had sons and they only did what, what when she said it was okay, which is how I plan to run my family, girl. <laughs> <laughs> 
and it's working so far. <laughs> we are 15 years in and it's working like a charm. <laughs> Train them up young. <laughs> and then when I get the pigs, <laughs> it'll be even better. Um, how did you come to Carl? How'd you find Carl? I love Carl. And I know here I was just ripping on a male author writing a female main character. And I'm a female author who wrote a male main character. Yeah, I thought of that when you said that. I was like, girl. That's so funny. I suppose in my defense, we're so used to reading books that had male characters, that main characters, that it's probably a little bit easier. I also think we also, you and I, because we only have sons and husbands, I think it's a different thought process because we really know a lot about men, unfortunately. And also, I kind of set out to write this story for my son. So I think that's why. And maybe Carl is a little bit like my son. A little bit. He's a collection of the things that I think make a good person. Even though he was struggling with a lot of things. I've And also, like, I moved a lot when I was a kid. So I kind of understood his struggles with that. So, yeah, he's a collection of things that I think are important. Anyway, it's it's a great one. And I think it's a great one to check out. Um, it's my son's going to read it soon for one of his oh. homeschool things, one of his homeschool jobs. And I think it's a great book. So go check it out. That was Blizzard on the Plains. And that is by our very own Heather Kaufman Peters. All right. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to have a discussion about reading in the time of COVID. Instead of a pick six this week, we got pick two for you. So we're going to take um, a look at two different articles that we found about reading in the COVID, in this time of COVID, which seems to be going on forever and God knows if it'll ever end. But um, you can, we'll post links to these articles in the show notes so you can find them and we'll also put them up on the blog. So the first article is from the Washington Post and that's from April of last year by Laura Hanby Hudgens. Can you give us a rundown? Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, I'm super excited about this article. Okay. The article is titled, A Middle School Teacher's Creative Way of Framing the Pandemic for Children. And like we said, this was written right at the beginning of quarantine. And it was by a teacher who was exploring ways to help kids cope as well as teach them. So she's a good, really great teacher. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, I was just going to read a little bit that she wrote at the beginning. It says, conducting a virtual classroom long-term means rethinking what and how I will teach teach, and even how I will relate to my students. In these challenging and frightening times, it also means deciding what my students really need to learn right now, what will help them process what is happening, and maybe even help them come out on the other side of this a little stronger, what my middle schoolers need, and what I would argue all kids need right now, and honestly, forever, is Hero's Journey. I hear like angels singing when I read that. I was like, I think it's so funny because this was written right at the beginning because we, I don't know what state she's from, but um, the way she kind of laid it out was exactly what had happened. Like the principals were saying, Hey, things are getting a little weird. We don't know what's happening. Just be, you know, be on the lookout. Well, I'm sure it'll be nothing. It's just probably the bad flu. And then within like a series of days, Okay, we've got two cases. Okay, this kid was exposed, blah, blah, blah. And then like days later, all of Massachusetts was shut down. It's it's exactly what she was saying. And we're all like, oh my God, how are we going to do this? How is this going to happen? And what about these kids? What do we do about these kids? I don't think any of us in a million hundred years dreamed then that almost a year later, we'd still be doing it. So I think it's really 
important. It's very timely, even though it is an older article. When I saw that, I was like, yeah, that still holds true. So basically, I'm as obsessed with the hero's journey as I am with Vikings, if not more. Um, So the hero's journey, for those who don't know, is basically a narrative pattern. And it was discovered by historian Joseph Campbell, who... Oh, Joseph Campbell, I love you. you I are love a super you. Nerd. I you know. are such a nerd. Go on, girl. He passed away a while ago, but he's still one of my faves. Anyway, he discovered that there is basically this narrative pattern that appears across all cultures and all time periods. And it's called he called it the hero's journey. And it basically breaks down to you have the main character who gets a call from their ordinary life and which is usually kind of boring or terrible or something like that. And they get this call to adventure and they take off on their adventure and then they start to doubt themselves and worry. And then they meet uh, a mentor who kind of helps them along their journey and encourages them and kind of bucks them up to face everything. And they face um, a lot of ordeals and challenges and tests of their skills and their fortitude and persistence and all that stuff. And then they uh, get whatever, you know, they claim their reward, whatever it is that they're after. Um, Like in Icefall, you know, Solveig is able to tell an amazing story that's saves her family. Uh, and then after their, they claim their reward, then they return home and they are kind of a, a much older, wiser version of themselves. I just love this framework for fantasy or adventure stories. It's basically, you'll find it in anything you look at, really. Right. And coming of age. Especially middle grade. Yeah, for sure. Um, with the coming of age stories, because it's basically the synonym for the hero's journey. <laughs> George Lucas was said to have used this when he created Star Wars, actually. And he, he even met with Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell talks about it. Um, Joseph Campbell, before he passed away, was interviewed by... By, um, Bill Moyers. And so there's a bunch of videos out of him being interviewed and talking about this, but there's also a book called The Power of Myth, which is basically those interviews in book form. But, and also if you want to learn more about the hero's journey, um, Joseph Campbell has a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And that's basically how he came upon this narrative pattern that he discovered. So anyway, uh, yeah, way important in writing stories, way important for children, because uh, heroes' journeys are really about bravery and facing your fear and struggling. The struggle. I mean, I think that's one thing that kids, sometimes because they're so overprotected nowadays, they don't ever struggle. And so any small struggles just seem so huge to them. And so, yeah, that's a really important thing in stories like this, especially like during times of the pandemic where they're worried about things that are going on outside of themselves. Um, They're not, you know, facing down dragons or evil tyrants, but it still has the same effect on them. Well, and that's what she says, you know, like in the article, which I thought was right on the money. It's like very much kids, especially, and this is geared towards middle school kids because she's a middle school teacher. And I think that what it is, is it's like these kids were exactly the beginning of the hero's journey. They were plunked out of their reality. Yes. They were suddenly like every day you're dealing with the hardship that is like life in middle school and like going to the lunchroom and not having anyone to sit with and blah, 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 blah. And now suddenly you are home alone. You didn't get algebra, but you didn't want to understand, you know, ask the questions or whatever in class. Well, now you don't have anybody to ask it to except your mom and dad who haven't probably done algebra in 40 years Mm -hmm. and are not going to be able to help you very much. So they have to figure out, oh my God, these kids have had to figure out how to navigate their own journey. How do I figure out how to get help? How do I deal with the boredom? How do I deal with the loneliness of not seeing anyone? 
anyone, but you know, like even now my son is still like, they'll go out and hang out. They can't go in anybody's houses. They can't go out without a mask. They're riding their bikes or playing football or hanging out on the bogs or doing whatever. And they still like can't get close to each other. Right. It's, it's a really scary time. I would definitely think even now this January more than, you know, last spring, all these things are setting in that they're missing out on. There's no sport, you know, not as much sport. We haven't had sports for a year. We stopped playing basketball when this started. We missed basketball. We missed two soccer seasons. I mean, it's, it's bad. And we miss basketball again. I mean, what do you do? You know, you can only do so much just dance. But at the same time, I look at these, this group of seventh grade boys that periodically runs through my, you know, my driveway or whatever and comes and gets my son and they're off again. And they find a way they have, they're always, there's about seven seventh graders voices pouring through the xbox upstairs at any given afternoon and you know they find a way i think it's it's really it's a great idea i just think it was a great article yeah they did need the hero's journey but they also are creating their own and um it's a great time to give them some examples and it's funny because i noticed like the books i've been giving my son to read have all been very much in this vein Wonderstruck. He definitely was on his journey to figure out who he was. Right now, he's reading The Red Pyramid from the Kane Chronicles. Definitely the hero's journey. And he's really enjoyed them. And I've enjoyed talking about them and reading them along with them. So I think it's definitely a time where if you ever needed somewhere to kind of somebody to give you an inspiration, this is it, you know? Yeah. I mean, honestly, most adventure and fantasy stories follow the hero's journey pattern, you know, whether it's intentional or not, it's just built in, especially like we were saying, you know, the coming of age stories that you get in middle grade anyway, it's kind of built into that already. Yeah. Yeah very important. The second one we took a look at was from The Conversation, which is a cool, uh, it's called Academic Rigor with Journalistic Flair. It's a cool website (laughs) that I have recently been kind of stumbled upon and and keep going back to because it's got some good stuff on there. And this is about how reading habits have changed during the COVID lockdown. They took a look at various people. They asked three main questions. How much have people been reading? What type and genre of text have people been reading? And to what extent have people been returning to previously read books? This is what I thought was really weird. At the very beginning, it says that people were immediately drawn to books about isolation, like The Bell Jar, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, Love in the Time of Cholera, uh, Outbreak. Are you kidding me? I was like, the last thing I wanted to read about was being, uh, are you kidding? I was shocked by that. Ah, uh, really? Right in the beginning was when I became obsessed with great courses. They had a whole thing on the Black Death and I could not stop watching it. I don't know why. I just felt like I was preparing myself somehow or informing myself. I guess so. Did you read World War Z again or like reread <laughs> to prepare? <laughs> I'm just saying somehow like knowing that other stories exist that are similar somehow is kind of comforting or feeling like you were informing yourself on what it could be like was comforting. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I guess that makes sense. Like how do you get, I couldn't get through 100 years of solitude even without a pandemic. So well, I also thought it was interesting how like they, she was talking about in other times of stress afterwards, these sort of literary things have come out like science fiction came out after the Industrial Revolution and Charles Darwin. Detective stories came out after the Great Depression, Wait, which I was shocked about that. I didn't know that. Did you know that like gothic literature came from the French Revolution? It makes sense. I predict we're going to have a lot of dystopian fantasy. You think so? I think so. Well, I know that's what I've been writing. And I don't I never wrote dystopian in my life. Again, these women have all killed their husbands. So <laughs> <laughs> 
just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. The husband's already dead. Um, anyway, no, but I think that I think we'll see a little more like dystopian and sort of survivalist kind of stuff. I guess I could see that because there's something sort of reassuring and having like a happy ending to those stories. Like you're writing the happy ending. We made it out. I could see that. You're right. That sounds fascinating. Anyway, now I know it was you. I was like, who is going out to read like Love in the Time of Caller? Who is reading these horrible, depressing books right now? It was you. You. It was you. (laughs) Just at the beginning. And then just like in this article, it says then people were like done with it, like right away. And that's how I was. I thought the really fascinating thing was uh, the rereading section too, where a lot of people were rereading books. So she said there's kind of like two categories, people who were reading new things because they have time and they wanted to explore new things and books that maybe the classics like they always thought they would read. And then there were people who were rereading books before the comfort and the security of knowing what was going to happen. I was 100% in the second camp. See, I was in the first. I was reading classics. I'm like reading Moby Dick right now, which I never would have read in a million years. And you see, I reread Island of the Sequins, Love Nun by Christopher (laughs) Moore. And that's why we're different. (laughs) So I think this rereading thing is so fascinating how it's equating it with a stressful time because rereading happens a lot in kids who are learning to read. Or like middle school, kids will be obsessed with their favorite books. or And that's why series are so popular in middle grade because kids like that uh, security of knowing the world and the characters and all this stuff already. Like it's comforting to them. And I, I think it's probably because reading is sort of a new thing during that time, like all through grade yeah. school and middle school. You, you're reading a little bit more difficult books every year, and that's so stressful in itself. And so I think it's really, and I know a lot of parents sometimes worry about kids just rereading the same book over and over, but it's the exact same effect. It does not matter. Reading a book is reading a book. Words are words. Yep. Yep. It does not matter. My son read Diary of a Wimpy Kid like over and over, the same ones over and over again, and he just loved them and it made him happy. And it's reading is reading. So that's really not a problem. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. Interesting that equating that with stress, stressfulness. I think a lot of us had more time to read, but it yeah. did note a lot of people said they had more time to read, but they didn't have the ability to concentrate. They read more, but they couldn't retain as much. I feel like that definitely is so super accurate because, and, and I, I know this one was actually the study, I'm pretty sure it came out of England, but with us, we had on top of all of the pandemic, all of the madness, we also had this very unpredictable political situation that was a constant cause of stress that just seemed to keep getting worse and worse and worse. It was funny. I just read an article or a, a quote from Stephen Colbert. Who felt, he said, I feel like for the first time stepping on dry land after being on a ship in a storm for the last four years. And I feel like I think that's true. If this COVID thing ever ends, girl, I mean, we are going to be skinny, productive, intelligent, brilliant, because suddenly all of this like crushing weight that's been on us is going to be like, you know, all that stuff that's been taking up space in our brain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is, there's going to be a huge, a great time of creativity come out of this in the end, because I feel like people, not just me, I don't feel like I'm alone in this. I feel like a lot of people haven't been able to create much during this time because it's just too much. You're homeschooling your kids. You're trying to navigate a pandemic. You're, you know, there's so much happening. You're trying to keep everybody safe and healthy. And, but I feel like when that's done, there's going to be this huge kind of like roaring twenties bloom come out where all kinds of new and exciting things are going to happen from an artistic vantage point. And I, I just hope we get there soon. <laughs> 
they need to get there soon. So this is a really great article. The other thing that I want to say that it talked about, which I thought was really interesting, is that many people uh, said that they took this time due to the protests and police brutality and the discussion, the new, more open discussion about Black Lives Matter and racism, that they t- it was a really big catalyst for um, searching out texts by non-white authors. And trying to understand. Understand the situation better and really sort of um, taking that time to to look at different voices. And um, I think that's true. You know, that's definitely true for me. Mm-hmm. It's a cool article. I just like to know what people are reading. A, I like to know that people are reading because I feel like we read like dorks, but I also know there's a lot of people that I read that always are like, God, you're reading another book or you're, you're at the library again. I think there's a lot of people that just don't read. My mom was a big reader. My grandma mm-hmm. was a big reader. Mm-hmm. I came from a line of readers. I think my children are going to be readers because of that. But uh, there's a lot of people that don't. All right. That was a great chat. Thank you so much. Those articles are good. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sending those to me. That was, I mean, when I read that one about the hero's journey, I was like, yes, someone knows my soul, my heart. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> so what's up for episode 18, Margie? For the next two episodes, we're going to look at myths. And I think this Yay. is, re- I love myths. I love mythology. I love like folklore. I love that. I love cultural folklore. Our next episode, we're going to look at myths from the international point of view. So right now um, we're looking at, you know, Greek myths, Egyptian myths and things like that. And we're going to concentrate concentrate on a couple. I have a book, I think, on Latino myths. Ooh, I found one on Filipino folktales. And then after that, our next episode, we're going to narrow it down and bring it on home to American myths. So, you know, like Sasquatch, which my kids are pretty sure lives in our backwoods behind our house. You got any Jersey Devil stories for me? <laughs> I am mortified to tell you the other night. Okay, so my son is reading a book. Um, he is reading a book about the Jersey Devil, my little nugget and I. And my husband is like, what is the Jersey Devil? And I'm like, you hush your mouth. How dare you? And I had to explain to him about the devil that lives in the Pine Barrens. And he was born of this, you know, the, the child that the woman never wanted and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, how do you know this? And I'm like, I don't understand. We lived there for how long? How do you not understand this? How do you not know? We used to torment the kids when I taught fifth grade. We took a fifth grade field trip overnight into the Pine Barrens and we camped in the Pine Barrens overnight for two nights. And I used to tell those poor children stories about the Jersey Devil. <clears throat> anyway, I guess that's it for us. So if you want to join us twice a month for Kidlet discussions in the future, please subscribe to our podcast through any of the places where you get your podcast. And if you want to find out what's happening in our world, you can follow us on Two Lit Mamas podcast on Instagram. Two Lit Mamas on Facebook, and of course on our website, www.twolitmamas.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.